It's the year 2000, the start of a new millennium. A revolution is brewing in the retail industry, as it is in much of the business world, thanks to the emergence of the internet. Weeks after these celebrations, Tim Steiner and two friends will found Ocado. Tesco is currently the biggest retailer in Britain and everyone is buying their food at the supermarket. But Steiner and Ocado think things are going to change. You're listening to Business Studies with me, Graeme Ruddick. In this episode, we talk to Tim Steiner about the rise of Ocado, one of just five FTSE 100 companies to have been built from scratch in the 21st century, and one of very few promising British tech startups to have become a big business. I started in finance in 92 and worked in London initially, moved to Hong Kong, moved to New York, was working in the high yield business at Goldman in New York. And, you know, it felt like the pace of change was faster than we'd ever seen before. And new companies and new ideas were emerging really quickly and theoretically gaining great ground very quickly. And it just felt like a time to do something other than be a Goldman Sachs bond trader, which was a phenomenal career and very lucrative for the bond trader as well, but didn't feel like it was having any kind of influence on the world and just thought we could do something kind of more interesting, more important in some ways. And looked at a number of different ideas and and options and really were fascinated by the grocery industry. Fascinated in that it kind of was in a position that many people think was the status quo and felt like it had been there forever. So looking at it from the UK perspective, Tesco's was the biggest grocer. And I think if you ask most people in the street who had been the biggest grocer you know, 50 years earlier, or at that time, 30 years earlier, roughly when I was born, they would have said Tesco's, but they would have been you know, completely wrong. And they would have missed the, you know, the, the, kind of the, the size and scale of the co-op and then Safeway and then Sainsbury's before Tesco's had become the biggest grocer. And how much the, the, the business had evolved in the previous, in the UK, in the previous kind of 50 years, although globally in the previous 80 years, from a grocer being somebody who didn't sell things that you bought, a green grocer, a baker, a, a butcher or a fishmonger, a grocer who stood, you know, who stood behind a counter and, and sold grocery items across the counter into kind of consumers takeaway containers and how it had evolved with the advent of self-service and how it had then you know, evolved with the advent of, of, of a supermarket kind of bringing together a grocer with the green grocer and the butcher and the fishmonger and the baker and then how it had moved out of town and how each time the majority of market share had moved a lot, uh, uh, great commentary you can find historical commentary in things like the grocer magazine where they talk about this newfangled self-service and people say well, I don't think it will take off and it might be you know one or two stores like it but people like to talk to the man behind the counter type of stuff and how at each step how the consumer had benefited from lower prices because it was more efficient and had benefited from more range because these big stores and, and the packaging allowed greater range but when we looked at it and thought about it a lot, we realized that the consumer had also lost out. The consumer had lost out in terms of kind of personal experience, personalization, knowledge. You know, the, the, the man behind the counter knew the customer, knew their customers, knew something about their family, their setup, their income, their kind of position, what they wanted, this kind of stuff. 
And also they tended to have a boy on a bike outside that could then ride the groceries home. And so when I looked at this opportunity, I felt that it was a fascinating one to deploy technology into, to continue the trend of offering lower prices and greater uh, ranges to customers, but returning to the levels of personalization and service that had been in the market 50 years earlier. And by the time I started this business, business to consumer businesses were already unfashionable. I missed that trend. And actually it was B2B that was fashionable. And the type of things that were really fashionable were like laying a fiber optic cable between London and New York. But I felt that you know, there are only a few telcos on either side of that cable. And therefore, why is it worth a lot more than it costs to put it in? Because someone will just put another one in. Whereas if you can do an outstanding customer proposition, then you really can, you know, have a unique service that you offer to hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And therefore, you know, it's it's harder for someone to come up behind you and, and try and just kind of replicate you and just try to erode any margin that you might have managed to you know, earned through your early investments and your innovation and your, you know, your, your kind of talent that you've deployed into it. And the other thing that had been fashionable was like choosing a niche. You know, I'm going to be the world's largest seller of dog collars online. And people come up with these things where they're like, you know, I'm going to get a first mover advantage and I'm going to have a 100% market share. And it was like, what are they talking about? Because, you know, why do they assume that the entire market's going to go online? And because they went out first, you know, dog collars are us, that they're going to get 100% market share. And so the fabulous thing about the grocery market, of course, is it's something like $10 trillion today globally. And today it's like 185, £190 billion pounds in the UK. So it's another one of those markets where you could build, or it's one of the few markets where you could build a very big business if just a bit of it went online and you got a bit of market share from that. You know, if, if, if as we are today, about 11, 12% of the UK grocery market goes online, um, you know, if you've got a 15% market share, you've got a business approaching £3 billion a year in the UK alone. So for all those reasons, it felt like the good opportunity, uh, interesting challenge, didn't realise how complex and difficult it was going to be. And the timing was just, you know, kind of a euphoric time. It worked at the time for me from a personal perspective and took a view that if it doesn't work, I hoped that I would be able to go back and do what I already knew I was good at and got paid a lot of money for doing. That may also have been a naive perspective, but I think naivety is possibly really important in starting a business. Steiner and his team immediately faced challenges in getting into the complex grocery industry, from buying technology to hiring staff. I guess what I found there was sometimes people would come in and talk a lot of jargon. And you think, oh, well, uh, I don't really understand because it's a lot of jargon. And I, I quickly learned a rule that was basically, if you can't explain to me what you're doing in a way that I can understand it, I think it's fair to say that almost on every occasion, it's because the person explaining it doesn't really understand it. They've just been in that field for a while and they can talk the jargon. But if they can't simplify the jargon into something that I'm reasonably intelligent enough to understand, if you see what I mean, they don't really understand it themselves. And that rule actually... If you said, what would you like to, if what one rule do you apply now that you'd like to apply from the day you started? And that would be the one, that would be the best one to kind of, you know, work out who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. Does that mean what they're trying to sell you is just a waste of time? Uh, it can be people that work for you. It's just that they say, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm in the top 1% of people who understand this, whatever it might be. And then they start talking to you about it and you're just like, well, I can't follow this. And you're like, hold on a minute, slow down. In, and often you can't follow it because they just some some people have had careers where they've managed to bounce from one job to another, never really achieving very much. 
and they end up right at the very top and they're not brilliant um, and they're out of their depth, they've probably picked up a lot of jargon along the way. And so they can throw lots of, <laughs> lots of, oh, you don't understand because it's happening at this level and at that level and, you know, and it's this kind of thing. And you're like, well, what are they talking about? And so I tend to find that the smartest, smartest people out there can explain some quite complex things to a person like you or me in a way that we will follow them because they really like in-depth understand them and then they can think to themselves, hold on a minute, if I'm talking to somebody now who's not an expert in this field, let me just find another way of explaining it. It might take a little bit longer than using some of the jargon, but I can find another way. And when people can't do that, it's it, to me it's been a red flag. Did you pick that sort of rationality, I guess that's the right word, up from being in the markets and being forced to understand things in order to... Make no, I think, uh, to be honest, as I say, it's something where I had a number of people who did come in because of CVs, because of prior experience, because they talked a good game. And my experience, having done that several times, we're not, obviously not mentioning any names, I've learned that it's a massive red flag. If someone can't explain what they're doing to me, it's just a red flag. And I, don't, I, I can't work with them. You know, I was a bond trader. What was useful, I guess, was I was a bit more than a bond trader. So I guess you could look at it as that I had two principal skills or a few principal skills that I needed to be successful at what I did in my first career. Um, solve problems, often client problems. Um, I think running any business, you are a problem solver. Right? Uh, it can be, what is the problem that my end customers face that I want to solve for them? How might I do that? Or it might be, what is the problem that I've got operating that plant over there? Or what is the problem that somebody's got using my website over there? But problem solving is a huge skill. The second thing that we used to do, that you do as a bond trader, you don't do in traditional business. And this, I kind of ran into some culture clashes with people out of traditional business, is that we used to do a, 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 a P&L account every day. So every day you do a P&L account. And also you're taught to reevaluate your positions every day. So every day, look at what I've ended up with as a result of what I did yesterday, the day before, the day before, the day before, and say, am I, ha am I happy with where I am? Now in traditional corporates, my experience again, having brought people in from those companies, is that you make a decision. You decide to you know, buy X. You buy it, it doesn't work very well, but you do not say, we made a mistake buying it. You never admit that. You work around it until you leave <laughs> or until it's 10 years old and you no longer need it. If the day after you bought it, you realize that you could buy something better than it and you could spend a bit more money, but save that over the next 24 months and then beyond be in a much better place. You don't do that because that's admitting that you made a mistake the first time. Now we had to kind of encourage and encourage and encourage and get people to the point where they will reevaluate every decision they've made historically at you know every minute of every day going forwards type of thing in order to do the right thing. Accardo started operations in 2002 with backing from the John Lewis partnership, which put in money and supplied products from its supermarket chain Waitrose for Accardo to sell. Accardo grew rapidly and in 2010, it floated on the stock market with a valuation of just under £1 billion. However, life as a public company was challenging. Shares in the float were sold for a lower price than targeted and then fell further after the float. In 2011, the John Lewis Partnership's pension fund sold its 10.4% stake, meaning Accardo had lost its initial backer as a shareholder. 
Steiner faced questions about missed targets and whether the company could turn its losses into a profit. However, the share price started to rise. Accardo agreed a deal to partner with Morrisons to run its online grocery service. Then it signed deals to provide technology to retailers overseas. In 2019, it agreed a £750 million partnership with Marks & Spencer that saw M&S products replace Waitrose products in Accardo's own online service. In 2020, Accardo's valuation went above £20 billion amid a wider rally in technology stocks. It had become a very different business to the one that Steiner set up. Obviously, I'm not able to do everything today as I might have been then or as many things. So obviously, one of the hardest challenges that I've had to go through from when we started to now is effectively is constantly having to delegate more and more and more of the decision making processes of the business. What hopefully you do is you create a culture in in the sense of how we do business and how we approach problems and how we face up to stuff where you hope that that is embedded and it largely is you know this is not a firm where people say I've never made any mistakes you know and and everything I did yesterday was perfect Um, and you know if we set ourselves a target to get to 200 and halfway through the year we're heading right up to it and we're 190 most firms would get to 200 take the pressure off congratulate themselves run around telling everybody how brilliant they are we would go, well, we've learned something. The fact that we've got here quicker than we thought we would, what have we learned? Given what we've learned, what do we now think would be a really aggressive target? Well, we can easily see a path to 220. Let's set ourselves 240, because on the way to 220, we should find something else out that will make it better. Let's set ourselves a new target of 240 before we ever get there. So we very rarely ever hit a target, because if we're getting anywhere close to it, it clearly wasn't aggressive enough. You know, early on, we, we had uh, the John Lewis partnership as a... 40 plus percent shareholder. And I had a heated discussion with them one year after our results. And I won't get the numbers right because it was a long time ago, but it was basically along the lines of, they said, you know, you're shit at managing a business. And I said, why is that? And they said, because you put up, you gave us a budget at the beginning of the year that said you were gonna grow 100% and you only grew 90%, so you missed your budget. And I said, how did you do? And they said, well, we exceeded our budget. And I go, okay, well, what did you achieve? And they said, well, we achieved like two and a half percent growth and we forecast two and a quarter percent growth. And I said, you do realize that we're sitting here and you're telling me that you're brilliant because you did two and a half percent growth and I'm shit because I did 90. And they went, yes, because we beat our budget and you missed it. And I go, okay, we just got a different style. Because right? I'd much rather set a budget to go to the stars and reach the moon than set a budget to go up two stairs and go up three. And that's just, it's a mentality and it's a culture and stuff. Do you feel like throughout the entire history of the company, and to a degree, financial markets and, and the UK's business environment, you've been fighting against that sort of, that's the way we do things attitude. No, I, I, I think in those first few years, we had a number of people that we brought in who just, it didn't suit. And they left us. And I think we've built an amazing team of talent that, that largely, you know, goes at it the right way. It is a constant battle. It's a constant one trying to drive efficiency, trying to drive constant improvement, trying to drive constant innovation, trying to drive the constant challenging uh, uh, nature, ne- never satisfied. But I think it's an internal challenge. You know, externally, we've had all different other challenges of people, you know, particularly as a public company, 
you seem to have a scorecard every day. The scorecard may or may not reflect how you feel about yourself and the progress that you think you're making. Sometimes the scorecard goes shooting up and you're like, well, we didn't do anything new. Why is the scorecard going shooting up? Well, I'm not going to complain because at least up is in our favour usually, if you see what I mean. And then sometimes the scorecard's going shooting down and you're thinking, hold on a minute, I just made loads of progress. Why is my scorecard going down? And they call it a share price. But I think when you're managing a company and with the internal teams, it often feels like a scorecard. Um, but it's just... It's one of those things and you can't turn it off. You can't say, you know, I'm actually out of the office for two weeks, so can we turn that off? Because <laughs> it doesn't work like that. But I think that it's important not to be distracted by it, so long as it's not doing something that is causing a real effect, if that makes sense. And then just always focus on driving the long-term value of the business and you kind of think that over time it will eventually one day catch it up. You've touched on this a little bit already, that stage when you went from being controlling everything to having to delegate. That is a phase that UK startups have traditionally not been very good at. But you've managed to go through that stage and then go through to the next stage to become a sort of global leader in what you do. How, for others, startups, there's lots out there at the moment, it's a very promising time for UK startups. How do they go about getting to that next phase and what are the mistakes that they can potentially make? Look, I don't, I, I, I don't know. Right. Um, you're right, though, that very few people that start a UK business take it to the kind of size and scale that we have without, certainly without removing the me that was there at the start. So now, have we built teams around me, if you see what I mean? So we're, it, it, it's not the entire startup team sitting here. We've brought in experienced CFOs, for example. And, and so we've brought in some experience and homegrown, other, uh, homegrown others. Um, and between us, uh, we've been the right team and the mature enough team to kind of take the business on to the next level. I think you do have to, as one of the founders or CEOs of those you know, great British talent businesses out there, you do have to think about what do I have to do when I'm at the next level kind of thing? What do I have to do to get to the next level? And how do I need to behave and do it when I'm at that level? And there's a level of professionalism and culture and behavior that you kind of need to adopt that you might not have started with when you were a small business and that's kind of not acceptable to do when you get to a certain size. And again, we, I think we've seen some examples of that where some people are struggling with that as they kind of become public companies and become higher profile and people expect them to behave a certain way and they go off behaving a different way and people are like, whoa, you're, you, that doesn't work very well for us. Along the way, Ocado has faced plenty of challenges and questions. Some of these have been unique to the company itself, which we will come on to but some were about the wider grocery market and whether it was changing the way Ocado thought it would. After all, 22 years after Ocado was founded, online still accounts for only about 10% of all grocery spending in the UK. Has it been slower than you expected? It's a, it's a brilliant question, Graham. I think when you first build something in a spreadsheet, um, you know, the brilliant thing about spreadsheets is they never refuse inputs. <laughs> They occasionally go into error, but they largely never refuse input. So, you know, you can scale your business in spreadsheet numbers far faster than we've actually scaled our business. So on the one hand, we would have put a business plan together, you know, in 2000. They would have probably had us bigger than we are 10 years in than we are 22 years in. But it had a complete lack of understanding what that actually meant in terms of the influence on the global sector, in terms of the influence in the local market, in terms of people knowing what you do and knowing the name of your business, and in terms of the number of people that you directly employ or indirectly work with in your business. So I think in terms of the impact that our business has had, probably never understood how, how large that would be. 
in terms of some numbers on a spreadsheet, they would have been bigger in any early spreadsheet that we uh, that we built. Is that because of the? I mean, going right to start, I, I, why did you think you could change an industry when, on the one hand, as you said, that it was so big, but it was also so big because those players already in it were very big, huge. So why did you think you could take them on? Um, I, I think that, and you and you see it across most industries that incumbents. And this was the point about Tesco's being the biggest, but only having become the biggest, I think, and, I, and I'm sure they could correct me, but I think it was in the, in the early 90s when they bought WM Lowe, before that Sainsbury's being the biggest. And I think before Sainsbury's, it was Safeway, and before Safeway, it was Co-op, if I've got that right. So you can see that change happens, and usually the incumbent is, is disrupted. They're not good at disrupting themselves. They're, they're too comfortable in the model that they have created that is the, the winning model of the moment, the one that generates the most cash. And so there was a view that, uh, and I think that I still have the view that um, incumbents are always at risk in change, that disruption is difficult for them. And look, how, how many businesses were offered the opportunity to buy Amazon? Or, and, and how many businesses looked at Amazon and said, well, what are we gonna do to react to this? And then you know you look at where they are now and where Amazon is today. They they miss it, and so we had that view. And I would say so far that is the way it's largely playing out. The you know, we, we are now a partner with a number of, of incumbents who realise what it is that we've built, the knowledge and the capabilities and the software and the automation that we have in our armory and the ongoing R and D and what it's generating. And and we have excluding Acado Retail ten global clients today who are all incumbent grocers, but who want to do this and realize that, that kind of what they could do internally is very different to what we can do together. So it's a different way of, you know, what I'm trying to do is, is, is enable them to be the winner. Uh, and, and I'm sure we're going to succeed at that, being able to enable them to win in their markets because we're bringing the disruptive technology and matching it with their scale, with their buying power, with their customer knowledge, with their customer relationships and to create something that's unbeatable. But generally, we felt that none of the incumbents on their own were going to work out how to disrupt this industry. A big recent challenge has been that an online spending boom during the COVID-19 crisis and lockdown hasn't been sustained. Around the world, shares in technology companies have fallen as a result. Shares in Ocado are down 85% from their peak in January 2021. However, Supermarkets also appear to be under pressure amid a cost of living crisis. So what happens next? So look, the, the, the entire grocery market in the UK and a number of other countries has kind of pulled back, obviously, from its um, pandemic levels. Because in the pandemic, you didn't go into people's offices, you didn't go to work, you didn't travel, you didn't go to the pub or a restaurant or whatever else. So all the consumption was at home. Oh, and by the way, you're stuck at home, so not only are you consuming, but you're also going to just like incrementally decide to bake, and you know you, you're doing extra if you see what I mean yeah. as well, right? So, COVID kind of came, started to fall away, if you remember, and then came back in in a roaring fashion at the end of twenty, beginning of twenty one, when it was probably at its peak uh, impact, and there and that was almost before the vaccines, well, before it looked like the it looked like the vaccines might not really be having any effect. And so I think that there was a euphoria in all the online businesses that, you know, the migration was just going to continue, continue, continue. And, and if we did 
risk seeing other human beings it was going to be for something more enjoyable than going grocery shopping or picking up a you know a household item at, at a store right now as it happens it looks today i think then from the you know the covid has morphed into something that's got a very low mortality rate i'm not sure it's much worse than any other kind of nasty fluey thing that knocks you down for a few days and so people are getting on with their previous habits now underlying all of that there was a channel shift to online shopping. It has been much faster in online shopping uh, uh, verticals where the online model of distribution has been significantly lower in cost than running loads of stores. And so the, the things that migrated over really quickly were things where online undercut stores. You know, we all thought that online, if I buy a, a you know a microwave or a TV or a pair of trainers or a book online, it's cheaper than if I go to a store. That was certainly where our mindset was for 10 years. We, we've never seen anyone do that in grocery yet, right? So we are the same price as a hypermarket with a token delivery fee, but we're not yet cheaper than a hypermarket. So I think there is an ongoing migration that means that online it grows in scale, which cannibalizes the online retailer's costs, particularly in our model, right? So your clients now live closer, the more clients you've got, the closer together they live, the drive time between them is less and therefore you get more efficient. And on the other side, the average supermarket has less business going into it, and therefore they have to amortize their fixed costs over less and less business, it becomes a more unattractive model. That is not to say that it's a bad business and that they're all gonna disappear tomorrow. They're not all disappearing tomorrow. What it's likely to mean though, is that you will in some markets see weaker players exit the markets, as you've seen in other formats. You know, there are still people running shops selling you know, electricals, but there aren't as many as we used to have in the UK, as an example. We used to have probably three main chains, and I think we've got one left. And so the one can emerge reasonably strong. And so I think what's important is what you've seen over the last 10 or 15 years is you've seen successful cash-generating supermarket groups subsidize their online offer. And they've done it because you know the, the investment community has been enthralled to the online and wanted to see that when online does eventually take over, that they're going to be one of the winners. So a lot of people have kind of not quite straightforwardly, like, you know, subsidized their online businesses from the stores. Now, of course, that's, that, that causes the problem that they haven't faced up to the true nature of their online operations and how poor they are. Because they don't need to, because they're, they they're not trying to make money out of them. They make enough from the stores at the moment. Now, as you can imagine, when the cannibalization keeps going, now they've got an unprofitable online business that's supported by the profitable store business. But as the profitable store business ceases to make any money, who's subsidizing who? Whereas if actually, you know, you take the leap, you buy the right infrastructure, you do a better job for your own customers and you create better economics by working with the likes of us and the robotic automation and, uh, and, the, and the incredible software with the artificial intelligence and machine learning going on, it's optimizing everything. And you create a positive cash generating e-commerce business at that moment when store economics get difficult, you should be the one that can subsidize your stores. Your stores then survive the consolidation down to less stores and then you end up with profitable stores and profitable online. Your competitor hopefully is gone, right? And so I think that we're gonna see, it's gonna be an interesting 10 or 20 years. What COVID looks like it did with the benefit of, of hindsight, which is always wonderful talking with us, Captain Hindsight, is we saw a massive acceleration in the growth. So in the UK uh, grocery market, we went from something like seven to 15 plus percent. We've clawed back to something like 11 to 12. 
you could argue that if we just kept going from seven, we might have got not far off 10 to 12. So we just kind of did one of those classic kind of bull market peaks, come back down. and But, but overall, the trend is still uh, uh, um, conversion. At the end of the day, it's a chore. It's a chore that going back 20 years when we started this business, that the people in the household that did it said it was their second least favorite chore of the week after the ironing. You know, once a year, it's quite good fun. Twice a year can be quite a good fun to go. It's a bit of experience and you see what's going on and you look at all the products and, oh, I haven't seen that, I haven't seen that. If it becomes your responsibility as a, a, as a head of household or, you know, as the person in the household responsible for it, and, and once or twice a week, you've got to go to the supermarket and walk around the aisles and put the stuff in the trolley and walk through the till and put them in your car and drive them home. It's not a lot of fun. There are better things to do with your time. And if we can use robots and artificial intelligence and software to do the job for you, and not to charge you, you know, charge a token fee or no fee. If you, why on earth would everybody not want to do it? It's fresher food, bigger ranges at, at lower prices. It should be a complete no-brainer to migrate the majority of the industry over to over time. Can I ask you, you brought up John Lewis and Waitrose. Can I ask you about how you look back on your partnership relationship with them now? Because they were obviously fundamental at the start. They made a bold move in making the original investment. And I think we both benefited from it. But, you know, individual people can have big influences on certain organizations and what they do and i think that they at some point put the stake in the hands of somebody who for personal reasons wasn't a big supporter i think that changed the dynamic a bit of their investment i think later on they had some issues with pension funds and funding and stuff and they kind of did a clever deal that magically created over 100 million pounds on their balance sheet because of the way that you account for stuff but in doing so the stake got moved to the pension fund and so then it was there, and they kind of believed that they could carry on owning it. But of course, they had then the obligations to the pension fund and the pension fund trustees and stuff like that. And then when we were a bit more successful, suddenly it became too large a part of the pension fund, and they had to sell some. And then the stock fell, and then the stock rallied quite a lot. And it was like, oh, we've got to sell some more. And I think someone said, well, you know, while it's there, why don't we just sell all of it? Because now we've got so little, we'll have so little that we won't have any influence. We might as well just you know, diversify. So they did. We carried on working with them for a number of more, more years, but now suddenly they're just a supplier. And there was almost, the, the more successful we were, instead of thinking, okay, well, that's helping our overall buying scale and we're earning fees on it. There was a bit of, I guess you could call it resentment. Um, that should really be our business. And it's like, well, you know, you own 44% at one point in time. That's when your choice to sell it. And so that just didn't work out brilliantly. When it came to one of the renewals, I can't remember if it was the third or the fourth renewal, the terms they put on the table were very unattractive for us, we felt. And so, you know, we had a very attractive business uh, with a lot of customers and, you know, a great reputation. And so we sold half that business to MS, replaced the Waitrose supply with the MS product, which doesn't mean, and it's a huge, great confusion by a few people, that suddenly we sell, you know, 1,500 products that you can find in a BP4 court. Um, what it does mean is that we still sell 50 plus thousand products in Ocado retail, but about 4,000 or so that used to be Waitrose own label, those 4,000 have been replaced by about 5,000 uh, that are M&S own label instead. And we did a careful exercise looking through, make sure if there are any gaps that we would go and find other suppliers of branded product or bring it in an Ocado own label or whatever it is. And the switchover was, was, you know, was very successful. And so we re- ended the relationship with Waitrose. I think when the book is one day or, another, you know, when the book is written about John Lewis and Waitrose, it won't be seen as a great moment for them. It's interesting what you say there, that despite the sort of numbers and the progress that was made, did it ultimately just come down to personalities? 
Um, no, I, I think that it's not that it comes down to numbers, but I think sometimes people can use the numbers to 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 push agendas. If you say I mean, it doesn't, no, I, I I always say when people ask me a question, I'm not emotional about the business. I didn't, you know, I didn't try and put my name on the top of the door when we started the business. It was kind of tied to me. It's a business and it's here for purpose it's here for its people it's here for its customers it's here for its other stakeholders um and you know if there's someone at another company that's not the person that i would like to go out for a beer with that doesn't mean they're not the right person for us to do business with um i can't be influenced you know I, it would be unprofessional of me you talked earlier about you know how do you go from being the ceo of a small startup to kind of you know still being in seat when we get to the scale that we are and part of that is you've got to be professional and professional is i don't i don't choose people we do business with just because i like them i choose them because they're the right person to do business with for the business other challenges that cardo and tim steiner have had to face are a legal battle with one of his two other co-founders jonathan fairman that ended in a settlement and Jonathan Fairman and his business partner admitting that confidential documents have been taken from Ocado to try to set up a rival company. There's also been a legal battle with Norwegian technology company Autostore over patents and a huge fire at one of Ocado's sites in Andover, Hampshire in 2019 after an electrical fault with one of its robots. I think that they're probably not necessarily that you know some of those that the legal actions are almost noise they can be very you know upsetting that somebody that you've known for your whole life tries to steal or more than tries to steal does steal things from your business uh, uh, that can be upsetting but it's not it wasn't a big impact on our business uh, the other legal action on IP it's like you know if you're going to be in the IP space as we are and you've filed hundreds and hundreds of patents you know, it, you can't be massively surprised if you end up in some IP litigation. I think it, you know, the manner in which it happened was unusual. I think it's going very you know, successfully in our favour, um, but litigation is litigation. It's annoying. The fire in Andover was difficult. Um, it showed our business to some extent. I, the, the fact that we had the fire did not show us at our best, but the way that we reacted to the fire, the way that we carried on trading through it, the way that we migrated volume around the rest of our facilities, the way that we, you know, put into place and developed a business interruption, you know, in, in, in the middle of it, and the way that we kept our nerve and investigated it and improved our, our systems and our processes and stuff to make sure that, that we never had an incident like that again, I think it, it, it to some extent did show us what we can do. You, you say you try to take emotional decisions, but there must have been some instances, in, I mean, you take the legal action, found that someone you've known for your life, there must have been emotion in those issues. You, you know, with, with, with something like litigation, it's one of my colleagues, so it's not, you know, I, I spend a tiny amount of time involved in something like that because um, one of my colleagues runs our, our, you know, our legal team and we've got a team of lawyers and you know, if they need external help on something, they'll use external and they'll just get on with it. You know, we, we know we're in, you know, and that's something like that. We know we're in the right. We know we're doing the right thing and I can leave it to them. And, and actually, I've got so many important things in our business to focus on. Haven't got time to think about it too much or get emotional about it. Do you feel that you've got the recognition today that you deserve? Recognition's not something that we've ever really 
sought. So it's not about have we got the recognition we deserve. We we just want to do a good job and we want to help change our industry and make it more efficient for everybody. And some people we know think we're doing a great job and some people, you know, think that we're wasting our time. And I'm like, I don't know whether that will ever change. But we will keep working to do a better job. And I think that's the that's the critical thing. I think if you worry too much about what other people think, you can get yourself, you know, kind of obsessed. What we try and do is make sure in a succinct way we can understand if people have got a challenge with us or think that what we're doing isn't doesn't make any sense, just try and make sure we have at least heard out their argument. You know, just in case they actually have thought about it from a different angle to us or with a bit of information we didn't have or with a bit of knowledge or something that means that they've got a valid argument and then we need to rethink our own strategy. And I've been doing this now for 22 years. We've probably been speaking to external investors as opposed to just our kind of a few shareholders for about 12. And just a couple of times when I've asked the question that we've gone and gone, let's just do some data because that's an angle I've not thought of. Let's just go and make sure that we're okay on it. And we were. And most of the time you just think, okay, they're just saying, I'm not going to do that or I can't do that or that won't work or that person doesn't want to do that or no one wants to talk to me. But it's just not true. So if that's the reason they think that we're wasting our time, I'm really pleased because I'm, I really don't buy into their reason. I'm going to keep going. Well, out of interest, what sort of smart questions were they? What sort of things were, were they about? Oh, some, well, a long time ago, just after the IPO and one of the banks that wasn't on the IPO was trying to push the price down. And then you, you heard this question about a third time someone's asking you like something about what you do on this day of the week between this hour and that hour. And you're like, that's a really weird question. But I've now been asked it in one way or another about three times in the last two days, what's going on? And what I realized was they were trying to further an argument that whilst the productivity in our warehouses was rising and the productivity of a van route was also rising, they were trying to, 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 to shape an argument to say that it had, it had reached a peak and that as we grew further, it was actually gonna come down and the reason that they were trying to argue it was going to come down was they were suggesting that we were good at utilizing all the driver's hours, delivering all the hours of the day, because they said that we were hitting such a high income demographic that people had someone at home all day, either not, not working or somebody helping in the house or whatever it was, that as we became more and more mainstream, which we needed to do to hit the scale, that this wouldn't be the case and we'd only be able to deliver before eight o'clock in the morning and after five o'clock in the evening type of thing. And therefore they were trying to say, how much of your business do you do here? And so it was the first time that one of these questions that you actually went, I don't think so, but you know what? Assumption is, you know, it's not the right way to run a business. Let's just go and check. So we went and did a whole well, very quick exercise on kind of what we know about segmental information about our customers you know, kind of income groups and stuff like that and, and, and chosen hours of delivery to see if there was any strong correlation. What the, the analysts hadn't understood was we were way more mainstream than they already thought in terms of kind of average demographic of our customers. And in fact, we were moving into, dem, you know, even more demographics that were on shift work and stuff like that that weren't working nine to five, Monday to Friday. And, and in fact, between all of the groups, there was no strong correlation. But it was a... Of all the bare arguments I've ever heard, without having access to the data, it was one of the ones that you know had more resonance than, than some of the others that I've heard over the years. 
You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to hear more from my interview with Tim Steiner, please check out our newsletter, Off to Lunch, which is available on Substack. There'll be bonus content there, including what Tim Steiner thinks about the outlook for the rapid delivery market and the likes of Gorillas and Gatia. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com. <laughs>